Testing, one, two, three, check. Welcome to Collier's Talks, a podcast series featuring the latest trends, insights, research, and developments in commercial real estate in Canada and beyond. Mark, good to see you. Yeah, it's good to be here with you. Thanks so much for coming in to say hello. I feel like we always are taking down leases. We don't get time to just sit and chat. It's nice to sit down and chat, you know, get away from the working world and get into the chatting world. Yeah, for sure. So, Mark, I wanted to sit down with you today to talk about a couple of things. Number one, I want to discuss the history of Second Closet and how it's evolved into Go Bolt. I want to talk about how you've integrated technology and how that's played a key role in your business. It's kept you staying ahead of your competitors, and it's also benefit, benefited the consumer as well as helping out the environment, which leads into the third point, talking about ESG, talking about how the landlords have all these initiatives, but how it can affect or not affect the tenancy side and how some of these ESG initiatives on the landlord side are benefiting you or not. So I wanted to talk about a few of those items and have a chat. Great. Let's do it. So sitting here with Mark Ang, CEO of GoBolt, started it in 2017 and has turned it into an amazing North American wide logistics business. And it's gaining significant ground for its ESG initiatives, EV technologies, sustainable initiatives, and tech. Sitting here with Mark Kirschermom, youngest EVP in Callers Canada uh, at present. Uh, thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, good beer. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of the business. So Second Closet started off as a consumer storage company. You would go to people's houses, you would grab their skis, their bikes, their hockey bags, and you would store it for them as a valet model. That business ended up growing significantly in the first two weeks since inception. And then once orders started flowing in at such a rapid pace, you were very overwhelmed by the quantity of the orders that you had. So in expanding the business, you needed some investors alongside. One of those was Collier's alum, Mark Cowie. And actually Cowie- And Mike Cowie. And Mike Cowie. And then the Cowies actually allowed you to use some of their self-storage facilities to store some of your clients' products. Gobolt then started to move away from a B2C model to a B2B model. And over the past six years, Gobolt's logistics business has expanded into 10 plus cities and into 15 plus sites. Some of your key clients include Ikea, Rove Concepts, Frank and Oak, Endy, Red Bull, and more. Gobolt has received significant dollars in funding with recently a $75 million Series C fund coming from various investors. And just to put Mark on a bit of a pedestal. They've won some awards such as Deloitte's Technology Fast 50 Award, CIX Top 10 Growth Recipient, and Mark himself has won a, an award from Supply and Demand Chain Executive Magazine uh, and website for being a pros to know for an outstanding leader who reinvents what it means to be a supply chain professional. And also, most notably, Mark was on the McLean's Power List for 2023, which ranked the top 100 Canadians in the country who are shaping our nation. And Mark's category was for being a game changer in the EV entrepreneur category. And to put this into perspective, others on this list were Scotty Barnes of the Toronto Raptors, Haley Wickenheiser, Michael Cooper, president of Dream Unlimited, The Weeknd, Brendan Fraser, and Galen Weston. And importantly, John Chen of BlackBerry, the biggest Canadian success story. Movie coming out. Movie coming out. Yeah. In, a, in a few weeks. Yeah, you got it. That's fantastic. So, Mark, how did the business initially operate under Second Closet? What was the model? How did it work? So, ironically, we actually started with a 3PL. So, I thought 
Second closet was just going to be a marketing business, a customer experience business. And we had a file storage company that did all of our pickups and drop-offs. What they loved about us was that we were using their underutilized trucks and their underutilized warehouse space at a premium to what they would obviously pay for themselves. So they loved us. The problem was that we grew way too quickly. We went from zero to 20K in recurring revenue in two weeks, and it was overwhelming their systems. And so on our busiest day, after we'd broken into like college rooms and like dorms, like put under like business cards under people's doors, um, flyers in front of urinals, et cetera, to like drum up business, uh, we were left uh, at the university, at the University that? of Toronto. Yeah. yeah. I was a university student. I wasn't breaking into buildings without uh, a right to be there. Uh, we, we had to build the infrastructure ourselves within like 20 minutes notice. And so we rented a U-Haul. Uh, we used uh, one of our investors' self-storage facilities and became the number one client very quickly. And, uh, and that was the early beginnings. Very cool. Yeah. And what led to that rapid growth that happened so fast? Who, who were your clients? Who was calling you? Yeah, so in the early days, I mean, totally different permutation of what we are now. But when we were a consumer storage company, uh, we were primarily marketing to international students that needed to store their stuff over the summer. So very pointed group, very limited ad budget. Like we were just very scrappy. Yeah. A lot of that kind of scrappiness and practicality of how we do things have carried forward today, including how we think about our, our EV strategy. But um, broadly as a business, we've tried to be very uh, frugal and very kind of ROI focused as, as you would expect. So we, uh, yeah, we started off that way and we remain to be that way today. Wow, very cool. So after the three PLs, you got some of your own warehouses. Yes. So tell me, what were some of the first warehouses that you got as far as sizes and how does that compare to what you have today? So our very first warehouse that, uh, that we, we negotiated was 5,000 square feet with a thousand foot office. And we thought that we were going to be set for life. Like I remember walking into the back of that warehouse and saying, wow, there's a drive-in door, there's three dock doors. Yeah. We're set for life. Way too much. Yeah, way too way much more space. than we need. I was like, are we ever going to fill this thing? Yeah. Or is it just going to cost us like 5K a month? Yeah. And there was a um, demising wall that had a hole in it that opened up to 15,000 more square feet. So the building was 20,000 in total. And the landlord who was, uh, you know, they owned the building. They also used the front office primarily for their, their operating business. They were a shoe company. Um, they're like, hey, do you want to take this extra space? You guys are growing quickly. Are you sure you don't want it? I was like, no, there's no way we need it. So they patched up the wall. I think it cost them like 20 grand, which, you know, when you think about us paying 5K per month, four month payback just for the demising wall. Right. Um, and then six weeks later, we asked them to demolish the, that same wall and give us the other side. Wow. So uh, today we now have our biggest site is just over 300,000 square feet. Um, we have around a million and a half square feet across North America. So we've we've scaled beyond um, that that 5,000 square foot and humble beginning. But uh, yeah, sites are definitely a lot different. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. That one was 18 foot clear, uh, had bars on the window in the office, was right by- Prison, a, prison vibes. Prison vibes, right by a cookie factory, yeah. a chop shop, and a transfer station. So depending on the day, you might get, you know, metal burning, you might get trash, or you might get um, pleasant cookie smells. Fresh baking. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it was a bit of a, you know, choose your own adventure, wild card kind of showing up at the office. Wow. So just taking a step back a bit, going into these warehouses, you went from a B to C to a B to B model. When did you know that shift was coming and how did you make that shift? So we were already in four markets with four warehouses. In fact, a fifth warehouse, because we had a second one in Toronto. And, uh, 
we were being hacked by some of our most popular and you know uh, users of the service on the consumer side to support their business. So we have a very like high-end luxury retailer. The chief brand officer was using us to store her wardrobe on off seasons and then had us go to Yorkville to pick up the real retail display, go to Holt Renfrew and change it out there, um, store some excess products, uh, which is great. Uh, we also worked with WeWork in the early days when they were sort of all the craze and uh, were disrupting the commercial space and yeah. needed to set up properties, take them down just as quick. We were some of that intermediary support um, and BMW to support their experiential marketing team. So those are the first three power users of the business. And then we assembled a sales team of one and, and went after other customers. And that's how we got into e-com fulfillment and last mile delivery. Big groups though, BMW, Holt Renfrew, WeWork. Yeah. Big yeah. names. Yeah, big good, names. Good for the start of the resume. Yeah. Yeah. We were we were pretty pleased. I mean, we definitely thought that we had something there because, you know, Heinrich and I, my co-founder, didn't really envision ourselves becoming self-storage magnets and telling our grandchildren that proudly. So we said, let's maybe reinvent ourselves. And we already have this cohort of customer that's hacking the service. Let's reinvent ourselves to be something that we're, we'd be proud of. And so it was leveraging our infrastructure to uh, improve merchant and shopper experiences. And then all that came to a head when COVID hit. And we had these five warehouses that were sitting on a ton of recurring storage and a ton of movers and drivers and trucks that couldn't be used. And so that's when we started working with Ikea for the first time and were able to help them with their last mile delivery. Amazing. Yeah. Great success story. Yeah. Now they're, now they're an investor and, and uh, they're observers on our board and they've been great partners. And so we've been really thrilled with Inca and the whole team. Yeah, so great success story and nice to have them in your back pocket. Yeah, for sure. So Mark, on a macro level, can you describe the consumer experience with Gobolt? Sure. So Gobolt's a little bit different than a typical 3PL uh, and last mile logistics provider in that we've built all of our own software. So it's proprietary from tip to toe. So from the time someone integrates to us, that's through our engine, the order management system, the WMS and the transport management system, that's all our own ecosystem. And the shopper gets uh, a ton of extra like dolled up experience because we own that last mile tech as well. So when we route, our prediction model knows roughly when we're going to show up at the door. So we decentralize that to the shopper because most people's concern on the day of their delivery is like, where's my order? When is it going to get here? So we just say, let's just make a prediction and let's tell the customer when we think we're going to be there. We took that a step further and we gave them a real time truck tracker. So kind of like Uber, you can see where the vehicle is, how many stops it has before you, and roughly what time it'll it'll arrive. And you can track it all in real time from your phone. And so the shopper gets a much more enhanced kind of 2.0 last mile experience. And it saves our, our merchants from having to get non-value added comms. Um, and as well, if it's being done on an EV, it promotes that and some of the benefits that they're helping drive. For sure. Well, I mean, on the tech side, I've ordered from you and I've from Ikea, I should say, and you know, I see the GoBolt tracker on my phone and really it tells me when it's coming to my house down to the minute. And when you order from some, you know, other groups and it comes through UPS or FedEx, it says it's coming between one to three days. You know, if it needs a signature and they come, they tell you they'll be there within a two hour window. You can't be home. They send it to another spot. You have to pick it up. So, you know, it's great technology. Yeah, it's a huge hassle. And like it, it doesn't, I mean, there's the extra compute power. There's the software developers, but We've already invested in that infrastructure. Now we're just providing to every single delivery, whether it's a white glove delivery of a $20,000 sofa or a $10 t-shirt from one of our D2C businesses. Amazing. Yeah, so we're Amazing. So going green, you know, is one of your biggest initiatives. How did GoBolt start to explore green ventures? And was it a GoBolt endeavor? Was it a Mark Ang and, and Heinrich endeavor? Or was it from your clients? Yeah, well, I, I would say that 
Mark Heinrich and Gobolt are all uh, melded together as one, but uh, assuming that we break those apart, when Heinrich and I were running our five-year model as we were raising money, um, we had a line item that said number of trucks. And this was under, as we started to pivot into last mile delivery, we're like, holy kid, like we're gonna have like 5,000 plus trucks in no time. And then we looked at our fuel line and then we thought, holy cow, that's a lot of fuel that we're spending, like on a, like eight figures of fuel. Um, then we went like steps further and said, what's the impact of that? And our curious minds sort of got, got away from us. And we started to think about what are optimal ways for us to show up in the market today? I mean, we, we try to challenge the status quo and, and how we think. And we figured that having diesel guzzling vehicles on the road weren't, wasn't really productive. And I think being born and raised in Canada, there's a lot more appreciation for the environment than in, in other countries. And so, uh, we just, again, on the rocking chair grandchildren sort of uh, analogy, we just didn't feel like that would be another proud moment for us. So we started to think about ways to do it. And probably three years ago, we started to work with some OEMs to see what was out there. Very nascent. Most of the things were just ideas on a page. And we volunteered ourselves to be a industry input and share what we would need if we wanted to electrify our fleet. And now today, uh, we count a lot of those as like actual vendors that we work with, that we bought vehicles from, and that we have a really productive relationship with. So I would say it was a Mark Heinrich, go bolt thing all at once. And what's awesome is that a lot of people that join us today join us because of that mission. It's very mission driven from an employee perspective. And a lot of merchants are making decisions to join us because um, we have that same sort of ethos around our brands. No, that's that's great to see. I mean, you know, fuel costs alone, just talking about that in January 2020, you know, they were about a dollar 19 at a high, you know, and just recently, a few months ago, it ended up hitting a dollar 56. So, you know, it's a major cost difference better for the environment. And it's great to have those ventures in place, you know, and we like to think that everyone cares deeply about their their impact. At the end of the day, there are some folks that are just purely financially driven. And that's it's it's good to understand that. And the reality is that if you had to never pay a fuel surcharge again in your life, you'd probably be pretty happy. And so that 30% fuel surcharge that most folks pay, you know, that can be a non-issue if you transition to a brand that is trying to also move the needle on environmental right. initiatives like EVs. So how many trucks do you currently have? We have and what are the variations of, of trucks that you have? Yeah, we have a few hundred um, on the road on the parcel side and another hundred or so on the five ton side. So, um, but we have onboarders that are adding hundreds by themselves. So um, we have this one opportunity in Canada that will literally add uh, upwards of 200 parcel vans by itself. Wow. Yeah. So All for last mile? All for last mile. Yeah. So our business is changing and transforming every single day. Our opportunities are one of fulfillment, last mile truck, which is done on a five-ton with two people, a tailgate type of delivery, or parcel vans where it's a typical kind of one-person small package delivery. And customers can buy one or all of those services from us. So our business grows in different different ways across different verticals, but those are the broad strokes. So you can do everything from soup to nuts. Pretty much. Yeah. Nice. That's, yeah. That's great. And obviously with EV, you know, everybody wants to get into it. You know, electric vehicles are becoming prominent. More companies want them. But what are some of the challenges with having such a large EV fleet? I think the challenge is that logistics is all about managing edge cases. And with when you introduce EVs, I have a ton of edge cases themselves, you really amplify the things that can go wrong. And so unless you have a really good technology stack, you're not going to be able to manage EVs the same way you manage ICE vehicles. And I think a, you know, a misunderstanding that people have when they try to invest in EVs is that it will be the same. But the practicality of it is that EVs are not as simple as driving them off a lot and plugging them in the wall. 
there's a lot more in terms of routing, load management, driver training, and systems that go into making them work. And so we've invested in a lot of that tech ourselves. And so we have this, what we're calling like an EV operating system, an EVOS, that lets us manage which drivers go on which routes, which trucks get assigned to which routes so that you know it can finish the range. We understand how the, the load is degrading over that time. If it's a heavier truck, how much regenerative braking will be generated on that dry path? Are we mostly on highways or city streets? What's the traffic going to be like? Because that impacts stop and go, which impacts regenerative braking. Um, does a driver behave well? Do they use the brakes or regenerative brakes? There's a ton of different like inputs that go into it that when you have thousands and thousands of trucks, it's impossible to keep up with all that. Yeah, it's so, a lot of stats and metrics. A lot of stats and metrics. Yeah. So data teams love that because they can make quick work of it and draw patterns. And so we're leveraging that for good and helping us make this transition. That's great. Yeah. So talking about ESG, it's a hot topic on the landlord side right now. You know, just some examples. Prologis has a goal for going carbon neutral on their construction in 2025. They're using a new product called Nexi in their precast panels, which is going to cut carbon emissions by 30%. 36%, I think, was the number. It doesn't have any lime or adhesives. Cartera, along with other numerous developers, are building net zero ready buildings, meaning there's more energy efficient components like electric heat, renewable and recyclable materials, and and other low carbon emitting materials. And Dream, although an office endeavor, announced they're transforming 19 buildings into a net zero retrofit, including upgrading boilers, heat pumps, cooling systems to other carbon sources. So I, I guess my question to you, Mark, is how important are these landlord initiatives to, I would say, you, Heinrich, and GoBolt, although you're all one, on targeting these lead and net zero and carbon negative initiatives on their construction? And and one more question, how does it how does it work for you as far as it helping you run your business? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, I was we always look at the practicality of something. Yeah. And I think that when you build a building with fewer emissions, once the building's built, that benefit is already sort of fully captured and fully stocked. Um there's no annuity benefit per se unless there's an energy efficiency to the site, solar sure. panels, etc. And that's where I think the landlord-tenant uh, initiatives are going to be more aligned when you look at annuity investments. So the precast example, that's great for the uh, developer to be able to kind of promote that. It's great for the the, the ultimate um, owner of the property. But you don't really bring the tenant along for that journey because it's sort of a one and done. Where you can bring them along for the journey to get them to start thinking about it, caring about it is how do you impact the annuity benefits, savings, costs, et cetera, um, and, you know, for us, selfishly, we really care about amperage and electrical load and, and you know, what type of service is actually provided to the site because it impacts how many electric vehicles we can fit into that site and charge at that site. So, you know, I, I think that the initiatives are all really important and, and well-intentioned. I think that there's they're being done in complete isolation, I would say, from talking to tenants, at least in our experience. And there's not much uh, there's not much sort of. Uh, bringing the tenant along for that journey, asking the tenant what would be helpful for them, right. co-investing or at least working on the same plans together. So any progress is good progress. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as they say, good is better than, uh, you know, done is better than perfect. But um, I think there's a huge opportunity for us to, to work more collaboratively. 
No, I think it's a good point. I mean, Coca-Cola, they've got a full sustainability program. Lululemon says by 2025, they want to use 75% more sustainable materials, recycled fibers, reasonably sourced product. And it's a great way for corporate tenants to align you know, with the movement towards sustainability. But the interesting thing on our end is we're not actually seeing that in tenants' mandates or RFPs, you know, that a certain building has to be ESG. It's just a big landlord initiative. But if there was more collaboration with tenants on what they really want or need, I mean, that would be a benefit to every. So I think the way to think about it is that retailers, um, tenants, et cetera, like whenever you're procuring a service from someone else, including uh, real estate, that falls under, under your scope three of greenhouse gas emissions, right? It's the it's the bucket that's the biggest often. Um, it's the one that is the hardest to affect because it's usually through vendors and partners. Um, and there's other line items in that list that are easier nuggets to go after, right? Like transportation is a very easy one to take down because there are sustainable alternatives and you're already spending that elsewhere. So why not make that switch? To lift and shift a building is tough. I think that's why some of the market can maybe move slower than what a technology firm might move at and what other firms might move at. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it'll take time, but I think it's why you should start talking now because if you're developing any building, you should do it in mind with where where your clients are going and where they'll be versus where they are currently. Future-proof it. Exactly, future-proof it. Move along with the times. Yeah, big time. So would you pay a premium for these buildings, the way that they're being built now? You know, Nexi precast panels, maybe some solar panels, electric heat. Is this something that Global would say, well, I'm gonna pay a 10% premium for this building? So I think we understand the economics of sustainability. I think where it gets dicey is when, we don't want sustainability to ever be weaponized, right? You get into greenwashing, you get into um, a space where it's not as authentic as it, it can and should be. So for us, for instance, we know that EVs eliminate the need for a fuel surcharge which actually makes the last mile less expensive. Though it is a premium sort of feel and a premium experience that you can deliver because you're better aligning your corporate values and your shopper, your shopper's values, it doesn't necessitate having a price tag that reflects that emotional tie. So I would prefer to challenge whether there is a premium to be paid in the first place because it, it might actually be a cost neutral or even a cost betterment by moving to sustainability. And as technology improves, it's all gonna be cheaper. For sure, right? And so I think it's dangerous where you have a legacy industry doing something that's a little bit more innovative and thinking about how they might be able to juice more margin out of it versus what are the real intentions behind us moving to this? From my perspective, I actually think there's a lot of advantages and cost savings that should be had. If we can have a building that's more energy efficient and we save on our utility cost, for sure. Like let's make sure that if it's a more expensive build, that we share in that build so that we can benefit on an annuity basis. And they should market those potential savings, For you know, sure. over the term, have those graphs and charts showing what you can save by leasing yeah. the building, never mind the premium. Because a massive building, I mean, you're probably spending 20 to 25K a month in utilities. Sure. Right? So, I mean, if we can cut that in half because it might have costs a little bit more and you're saving 12.5, you know, on a year, that's over like 145,000 per year. And we pay an extra 25K, 30K, 40K per year in rent. Name your price up to 145,000. We are indifferent. Right. Um, so I, I think that's where ultimately you need to run the analysis and see. But techn- as you said, technology is getting so much better so fast that I think a lot of the prices will be coming to a mean that is the same, or if not better. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, EV, something that's very important for your business. 
you know, this is something that's functional to your business. But of course, EV charging stations take up space. So let's say a landlord is building a traditional building, it's 50% lot coverage, you know, and due to the EV charging sizes, they have to reduce that building to say 40% lot coverage to make room. You know, also there's going to be a need for adequate transformers. They're going to be doing some trenching, you know, pouring concrete, electrician fees and permits. Is that something where you see yourself paying a premium if a building, you know, had uh, more EV charging stations in place, but for the landlord, they needed to make that money back because the building footprint was smaller. So they had to do some math to make the numbers balance out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think there's a element of, you know, particularly if you're not building a built to suit building and you're building a spec building that you're going to just go market. Landlords can simply just rough in more subunits in the building on all four corners, as an example, to make it cheaper for the tenant to then install their own EV charging later to their own spec. And so for us, what we often find is that there's a central electrical room in a 300,000 square foot building in one corner. And of course, the most optimal spot for all of our EV charging is on the other side. So you're spending 500 grand to either trench or run wires and disrupt your operation or delay your occupancy, which is not great for anybody. And then install on the other side, whereas you could probably play defense as a developer and at least install a couple more stations that you can then tie into more easily. Always cheaper to do it when you're already building the building in the first place. So I think things like that are just smart ways to future-proof a building. And if you're investing in that building for a 30-year horizon, sure, amortize that over the period, amortize it over our lease term. It, it's it's negligible in the grand scheme of things and a lot cheaper to do in reality than us having to do it after the fact. And if the rough-ins are in place, I mean, how many car companies are out there right now who are saying they're going to stop selling any gas vehicles after year X, right? So it's coming. Well, there's a government mandate, I think, after year 2030 in Canada where every vehicle needs to be electric. Electric. That's brand that's sold brand new. So that's that's around the corner. It's a yeah, it's it's a it's gonna creep up on us. And so I think there's a lot of um, trepidation around you know, how do we actually like build the grid and build the systems for it? Um, you know, and so for us, we want to try and find properties that, and one of our things, as you know, when we go to market is what's the amperage of the building? Sure. Can it actually support X amount of vehicles? And um, it doesn't also need to come off the building. You can have extra um, supply brought in to a containerized charging unit, as an example, using the space for it. I mean, places like New York, you pay per square foot of yard space as well. Sure. So ultimately, I think buildings will need to be designed to accommodate it. Um, what we've seen is like most parking lots are like very narrow, very long uh, rectangles. If it was more squared off, gives us even more optionality to manage our truck fleet, sure. right? So um, our site in Markham, that's 300,000 square feet, it's actually really hard to fit charging stations there because there's such a thin drive path around the whole building. Right. Well, they've where, got to maximize their lot coverage, right? Right. And But you could do that theoretically if you squared off your parking lot which gave us more maneuverability on length and width versus just make it super, super skinny and super long. So, um, you know, I, I think there's other practical ways to make it flexible within the same lot coverage that you could think about. So um, that's where we would be big proponents of. Uh, and I think there's probably opportunities to rethink how building uh, design and, and uh, construction happens. Maybe more design builds to come then than spec, right? Yeah. Help, help uh, design the actual building and lay out, you know, your... And look, it's a very quick conversation for any landlord to speak to any business that operates a fleet, is going electric, has a thought on this. Collect it, talk to your architects. You're already start doing some it focus anyway. groups. Start some focus groups. Like, if you're actually thinking about these investments being, I mean, when's the last time you saw a brand new build or a 30 foot clear uh, warehouse get torn down and rebuilt? Never. 
Never, right? They're built and they just stay there. Yeah. So unless you're going to develop a condo on top of it. So you might as well spend that extra two hours to talk to the market and your future potential customers. And I think generally this is where treating uh, tenants as customers that you have to serve versus have an entitlement to collect rent off of is a difference of thinking where I think some landlords do really, really well at and an exceptional job resourcing that and others have a ways to go. Right, right. More collaboration is key. All, all day. So I got to ask, an article came out last year in Time Magazine stating that a large online retailer in 2021 emitted 71.54 million metric tons of carbon dioxide into the environment. And this was 40% more than the company first disclosed their first emissions in 2019. Do your clients assess the impacts of a storage and logistics company like you from an environmental standpoint? For sure. I mean, we do, a, I think, a pretty good job at bringing that forward to the customer and the merchant as well. And what I'll just say on that first, that is, I would actually think about it more as a emissions per unit fulfilled. Because what if that business grew at 80% in that same time period, and their emissions only grew by 40? They're actually better, right? So sometimes headline metrics are are misleading. And so, um, you know, can't can't confirm or deny. But what we've done to try to make sure that we have a grip of our metrics is we built our own carbon calculator that takes into consideration the mode of transport, the weight of the product, the distance it traveled, the overall payload of the, the vehicle itself, um, and sort of obviously the, the method of fuel, whether it's electric or, or diesel, um, to calculate and produce to our merchants what their scope three emissions are via actual science-based like data um, so that it can, it can match their science-based targets that they set. Versus the market today, they mostly proxy it based on spend. So you might spend $20 on a shipment, therefore you must offset two cents or 20 cents worth of carbon. Uh, and so we we take it a step further so that people can actually leverage our data for their broader reporting. Makes it easier on everybody in the end. I think it's the right way to do it. I mean, if you genuinely uh, want to move the needle and want to measure your impact, you should design and invest in systems that will help you do that. And for our brands, we've been very deliberate with the types of brands we work with because we are pioneering something that's new and different and things will go wrong. And so you need a degree of understanding there. And we're very fortunate we have a ton of great merchants that deeply care about what we're building and how we're going to get there. That's great. That's great. And in your industry, is there a governing authority or standard on ESG initiatives for your industry, you know, on, say, how much carbon you're emitting? Does that exist? Not to my knowledge. And, like, we're pretty loud and proud about what we're doing. And we've never been, like, approached or heard of um, or come across. A lot of what we do is very introspective on, uh, like, a first principles basis, like, if we were to build this all from scratch, what's the best way for us to build it today to solution this problem? And uh, so we, we've tried to push the pace for ourselves. Uh, there hasn't been a great governing body. In fact, what we try to organize are these like VIP roundtable events with 20 to 25 supply chain executives from various retailers to share notes on this. So we've done probably six of those roundtables or dinners, and there's always a ton of great sharing across every single merchant. And we, you know, would love if there's any listeners that would want to partake. We we love new new entrants to the to the mix because it's just a great opportunity to, to take. When's the next share. one um, coming up? There's there's some that happen every four to eight weeks. So we'll, we'll, we're always doing something. We'll look out for it. Just talking about the market in the GTA on the industrial side. So we're a mass consumption market. The GTA is the fourth largest industrial market in North America. We're 900 million square feet. 
million uh, immigrants coming here uh, last year. Companies want to be here. We're growing at a significant rate. But while we're growing as a GTA market, so are our industrial rents. And for that matter, our industrial land prices, our sales, et cetera. So I got to ask, you know, because in 2018, we finished off the year at about six, seven dollar rents and we've grown 20 percent year over year since 2018. And now we're around 20, you know, so we're close to triple. So and I talk about twenty dollars in the core markets, you know, the Yorks, the Peels, the Torontos. My question to you is, is this sustainable? You know, and do you see this being sustainable for logistics companies like yourselves, like competitors? And will there be challenges ahead? So I never appreciated in my uh, macroeconomic class in university what they meant by prices take a while to push through the system. But think about it this way. There's a warehouse provider out there that has a $7 per square foot price point. Sure. Which means that his price per pallet space in his warehouse is much lower than someone that just leased space at 18 bucks a square foot. Right. So that person can be just inherently more competitive. And we need to wait for that person's lease to turn over. They've got a ticking time bomb. Exactly. Right? They've got a ticking time bomb, but they can still contract and build up against that. But then the next person who secured their lease at the next most favorable rate will probably win that business. But it'll be at an elevated price because they contracted uh, a lease at a higher price point. But it'll just take some time. Ultimately, the customer and the end consumer is going to bear the price of all of this. But it's just going to take a while. So I think you go through a period of margin compression as the warehousing provider. Yeah. And then you eventually pass that cost on to the customer through CPI or through price increases normally. Um, and then that customer passes it down to the shopper. So uh, it will be sustainable because the macro market will just have its forces at play. But in the short term, it's causing a lot of pain because I think people need haven't thought about their contracts this way. We haven't had a run up this aggressively ever, really. Right. And so I think it's a muscle that businesses haven't built, particularly ones that don't have a team of economists in their back office, which no one I think does outside of maybe callers, but, um, you know, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, there, there's definitely, um, some thrash in the market and I think it'll, it'll level out, but you know, prices will just elevate until they're not sustainable and they'll stop. Yeah. Look, we've gotten very expensive very quickly and, you know, you're in some markets that are on the more expensive side, but that's a mass population, right? So, I mean, LA, you know, New York, New Jersey, you know, but then you're in, you know, Dallas where rents are significantly less. Yeah. You have $5 a square foot and you have $25. US right. A square hey, five US, right? Yeah, so, you know, yeah, exactly. a little more than that. Yeah. So it's a, and you have everything in between, but when you think about the network, it changes how you can show up from a solutions design perspective. The thing is that's going to get, you know, unfortunately more crushed than not is the single site operator that's done this for 40 years and did not see this coming. So they might've signed a five-year deal, not bookending to their lease. And, you know, they need to then up and move. One location doesn't have multiple like you, you know, with 15 plus sites, right? So you're able to hedge a little bit too. For sure. And, and manage the network a little bit differently. Yeah. We're not immune to that change, obviously. Right. But it's, yeah, we're not as susceptible to like massive shocks to our business continuity. And do you see any markets that you're looking at next, you know, from a growth perspective, anywhere that uh, Goldbolt has their eyes on? We, we always look at markets in conjunction with our merchant partners. So wherever they, sure. they want and need us, we try to plot a business plan and a business case to go there. So as you know, there's always markets on the go. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I got to ask you one more question. What are some of the goals and where do you want to be in the next five years? You know, what's Goldbolt's vision in the short time frame? Uh, you know, looking five years back, you know, rents were seven bucks in my world. I never imagined that they would be close to 20, you know, so five years down the road. Yeah. A lot can happen. Who knows what can happen? What are some of the goals in your world? 
One of our big headline goals is to conduct 90% of our last mile deliveries on an electric vehicle within the next 12 months. So if we can achieve that, um, we'd have significantly supported our merchants in their journey to become you know, closer to carbon neutral. And we'd be very close to being a carbon neutral last mile provider ourselves. That last 10% is our hedge on whether battery technology hurries up or not based right. on how, how much range we can get out of one vehicle. Uh, so TBD, but that's one of the biggest goals that we have and we're super proud of. That's fantastic. And how long will a vehicle last on the road? So a vehicle... Like one of your reefer trucks. Uh, so uh, like in terms of range? Yeah. Uh, so hours, let's say, if it's running all day. Yeah, so it depends on how aggressively it's driving, but um, it'll be anywhere from 250 to 400 kilometers, depending on, on on the truck. So we have some OEMs that have 400 kilometer ranges and others that have 200 to 250. Wow. Yeah. Mark, that was insightful. Really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming down. Great to see you and having a little fireside chat. And yeah. Looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate thanks it. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks right. for listening to Collier's Talks podcast. To learn more about Collier's Canada, our experts, and our solutions, visit colliers.canada.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.